At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying his word together. In a culture growing in hostility, it's clear how far we are from what the kingdom of God should look like. As followers of Christ, it can be difficult to stand firm in what we are taught and what we believe in. It's easy to let idols slip into our lives without us even realizing it, especially when the world we live in puts people on a pedestal. In our new series, Daniel, The Clash of Cultures, we'll be looking at the life of Daniel and how even then Daniel had to navigate a culture who opposed God. We'll discover how we can put our trust in God regardless of our circumstances and how God is sovereign overall. Join us this new year as we study the life of Daniel and learn how to apply the truths inside this book to our own lives. Well, good morning. I would like to begin our time together by thinking of a a few catchphrases, if you will, that have permeated our lives and our culture. These things are called idioms. I'd like you to journey with me as we consider a few of these. And when we talk about these, what we're looking at with an idiom is a common phrase in our cultural vocabulary that means something maybe a little bit different than the actual literal meaning. And yet it's something that we all know and we all understand because they've permeated our culture. You guys ready? All right. He got up on the wrong side of the bed. How many of you feel that way this morning? All right. Well, that guy right there, he is an accident waiting to happen. I won't point at anybody. (laughs) Well, that is a bitter pill to swallow. You see, we're all familiar with these meanings and we're familiar with them because they are stated in our cultural context. Today, I want you to know that we are turning to God's Word and we're going to learn about a cultural idiom that comes straight from the Word of God. We've heard it. We've heard it often. And yet, maybe you're here today and you didn't know that it comes from the Scriptures. Well, it does. And I want you to know that the original context for this particular cultural idiom is the kind that will make the hair on the back of your neck stand up a little bit. It's a phrase that comes from the fifth chapter of the book of Daniel. So let's go ahead and grab our Bibles. As you know, we are reading through Daniel in the Old Testament, and what we're reading is the first uh, six chapters. That's the narrative portion, and so we're going to be reading a lot of text today as we have throughout our series. Now, we're going to read it in segments, so I want you to track with me as we begin these first number of verses. But here is Daniel. We're going to begin with verse 1. Daniel 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines concubines might drink from them. And they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. 
And the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines, well, they drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, and then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. And so the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. And so the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me an interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be third ruler in the kingdom. And all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. And then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Now the queen, because of the words of the king and of his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, they were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he... He will show the interpretation. Did you guys catch the cultural idiom? It was in there. The handwriting is on the wall. He saw the handwriting on the wall. I was watching a basketball game this weekend, and you know what they said? The one team took a pretty big lead, and you know what they said? They said to the other team, The handwriting is on the wall. What does that mean exactly? It means that something bad is about to happen. As we dig into today's text, we're going to learn exactly what it means to a corrupt pagan king. And it is a powerful story of God's judgment that rests underneath and behind this cultural idiom. Let's begin by considering what we just read, that first portion of chapter 5. Now, as you were here last Sunday, a lot has changed between chapter 4 and chapter 5. King Nebuchadnezzar is no longer on the throne. His 40-year reign over the Babylonian Empire is over. It has come to an end. And in his place, what we are reading of is a man named Belshazzar. But what we quickly learn of Belshazzar is that his pride and his arrogance, well, that rivals his predecessor, perhaps even surpassing it. 
We know this because of the actions that we just read about. In that first portion of the story, we read that the king, well, he is partying. The wine is flowing. There is all kinds of food and drink. The scene is pure revelry. And frankly, we could expect that from a pagan king, right? Right? Of course. But what is surprising to us? There's something very unique, not just about the fact that the wine and the food and everything is happening. Something surprising takes place, and it reveals the pride and the arrogance of this man. Look at verses 2 through 4 once again. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, he brought that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. And then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, they drank from them. They drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, of iron, of wood, and of stone. Uh Uh-oh. This is a bold, brash move. Can we agree to that? Might it be offensive to God? Absolutely. Remember what we have talked about each of the past couple of weeks. The one thing that God will not stand for is pride. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This pride is exactly what's on display. Belshazzar's pride against an almighty God. I might say, well, Pastor, I I get that he took the elements and he kind of took the gold and he was worshiping other gods. How could that be a direct affront to God? We're going to skip down just to consider verse 23. But you, you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And there it is. What they were doing in their drinking and eating and singing and praising to idols was offensive. And if that wasn't bad enough, they were doing it with the items used to worship the one true God. And the actions of the Babylonian ruler help us see that when we reject God's sovereign reign, we blaspheme the Most High God. And in today's story, that's when Almighty God has had enough. That is when Almighty God has had enough. That's when that mysterious hand appears and the writing begins. Look at verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. Opposite the lampstand, and the king saw saw what the hand wrote. Now, let's be clear for a moment. What just happened is absolutely terrifying. 
You're partying, you're doing some things, you're thinking, well, maybe it's not right. He's not even can really considering what's going on. And then out of nowhere, a hand appears. Must be some strong drink right there. And what happens to the king? The king gets pale. His mind races with fearful thoughts. His limbs give way. His knees knock. As you can imagine in this moment, if you are there in that space and a hand starts writing on the wall, you, like him, would be an absolute mess. Because he blasphemed God. Now it might be easy for us to read this story and just kind of breeze past it. Say, well, yeah, you know, that has nothing to do with me. That's, a, that's an Old Testament story. It doesn't connect with my life. Or does it? While our actions likely don't look like partying in a Babylonian king sort of way, doing sacrilegious things like that intentionally, we too can find ourselves with the same heart posture. Here's what I mean. God, I don't need you. My plan is far better than your plan. Whatever your plan is, it isn't as good as mine. God, I don't care for your ways. I don't care for your plans. I don't care for your rule in my life. I want it my way. Church, that's a response of arrogance. It's a response of pride. It is the response of a blasphemous heart. And it is from that heart posture God calls all of us to repentance. He calls all of us to repentance first unto salvation where we surrender everything to Jesus and say, I cannot do it myself. My ways are wrong and incorrect. I repent of my sin and I believe upon Jesus for my salvation. And then it's repentance in a consistent, rhythmic, regular way. And we do that for Christ-likeness. So the image of Jesus might be formed and molded in our lives. Because the reality is, we all have moments where we want it our way, not God's way. And what God invites you and I to is repentance. Now, let's grab our text one more time. We're going to pick up the story at verse 13. And then Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you. And that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and to make known to me its interpretation. They could, they could not show the interpretation of the matter. 
But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be made the third ruler in the kingdom. And then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory, well, that was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys, and he was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And his son Belshazzar excuse me, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and of gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose all your ways you, you have not honored. Once again, Daniel has been summoned in to interpret something for a king. As we just saw, it is not King Nebuchadnezzar, but the eldest son of his son-in-law, a man named Nabonidius. And Belshazzar is this guy's oldest son. And while his dad is away, he is taking full advantage of everything that comes with the throne. All of it. But what we've seen right in the middle of this story is a situation. Belshazzar has a situation on his hand. There is that mysterious handwriting, but the question that he wants to know is, what does it mean? He's scared and he wants to know, what does it mean? Should he be afraid? <laughs> of course he should be afraid. Hands don't come out of nowhere and write on walls for nothing. You see, God is revealing to the king his displeasure. Clearly, the young king had not learned anything from his predecessor's idolatry and pride and arrogance. He learned nothing. And he rejected the sovereignty of Almighty God at the altar of false gods and idols. 
And this shows us another way that you and I reject God's sovereign reign when we repeat past sins. Belshazzar knew what had happened before him, and he did it anyway. But the truth is, this isn't just for clueless Babylonian leaders, is it? Happens in our lives, too. We pay no attention to where we've been. We are on a faith journey, and many times we don't pause to look at where we've been and to learn from it. Instead, we walk into the same temptations over and over and over again. We put ourselves in the place to fall yet again. And that's just our own evaluation. When we walk on the faith journey, typically we're walking with others. We're doing life with other people. And yet, oftentimes we pay no attention to the struggles that, that they experience. We pay no attention to what God is doing in their lives that we might learn from them. A theologian and pastor by the name of James Montgomery Boyce explains this folly. He says, by refusing to think, especially about eternal realities, we lose sight of danger and we fall into the abyss. We've got to pay attention. We need to evaluate our own faith journey. We need to consider what God is doing in the lives of those near us and around us. So let me ask you, believer, are you evaluating your journey? Do you pause long enough to consider the areas of struggle, the areas where God is at work in your life, Are you mindful of the struggles of your friends and your family members? What is God teaching you through their life? These are questions we should regularly be asking. And when we find ourselves on that path that we fell before, you know what we ought to do? We ought to flee. God's Word says, flee from sin. Remove ourselves from those situations. Here's a tip. Don't go back. But I want to make one thing abundantly clear. Overcoming past sins is not simply about trying harder. Here in the Detroit area, we like grit. We respect hard work. That is not what this is calling us to. Grit and determination will not get it done. Whatever tempts you, whatever it might be, whether it's a sin from your past, whether it's something that has come up on you again, what God asks of you and of me is surrender. Surrender. Maybe it's a sexual sin. Maybe you've got deep-seated anger. Maybe you have absolutely no restraint when it comes to your finances. Maybe you have that posture of pride where you always have to be right. Whatever the struggle, whatever the temptation, 
God invites you and He invites me. He calls us to surrender it to Him, to surrender it to His sovereign reign. Now, let's look at the final segment of our text. See where all of this is leading. See what Daniel interprets for the king. We're going to pick it up at verse 24. And then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, tekel, person. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and you have been found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple and a chain of gold was put around his neck that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Daniel doesn't miss words, does he? He makes it very, very clear. The handwriting is indeed on the wall and it is not good for Belshazzar. Let's unpack those a little more closely. Many, he says twice, King, your days are numbered. Tekel. This means that the, your sins have been weighed. Your sins have been evaluated. Perez. The kingdom has come to an end or it is being divided. You see, while Belshazzar was blaspheming God, while he was off doing his thing, the sovereign Lord of the universe was at work preparing another kingdom to bring down Babylon. And so within 24 hours, the Medes and the Persians entered the city undetected and brought down the Babylonian Empire. Within 24 hours. This historical fact reminds us that God is sovereign over ungodly kings and kingdoms. That's what we see at work in this story. For it was Belshazzar's pride and arrogance that brought judgment upon himself and upon his kingdom. Now church, I want us to be reminded. To be reminded that this is not just an Old Testament problem. This is a problem that resides in the hearts and in the minds of men, women, and children. Today, right here in White Lake, it is the sin of pride and arrogance. So what happens to those who refuse to humble themselves before the reign of God? What happens? What happens to those who refuse to learn from our past sins? What happens to those who refuse to surrender our pride before a holy God? Like the story of Daniel shows us, we experience God's judgment. 
you and I will experience God's judgment. Throughout the scriptures, we read of God's pending judgment for sin and for evil. Now, for many, this is an absolutely terrifying thought. And yet, it does not have to be. It does not have to be. You see, every human who has ever drawn breath faces judgment before a holy God. This is what we professed a bit earlier in the New City Catechism, question 18. Will God allow our disobedience and our idolatry to go unpunished? What's the answer? Together we acknowledged, no, He will not. Every sin is against His sovereignty, His holiness, and the goodness of God. It's against His righteous law. And God is righteously angry with our sins, and He will punish them in His just judgment, both in this life and in the life to come. Now, some of you may be here today for the first time, or just a couple times and you may have thought it odd. Like that is not at all a very encouraging reading. It's a little intense for my worship experience. And yet it reminds us that like Belshazzar, the judgment of God will be placed upon you and upon me. Many, many, Teco, Perez. The question we must all consider is how we will respond when God measures our deeds. How you and I will respond when He looks and He weighs our character. And ultimately, when He looks and He declares you and me wanting. I have good news. Our answer is found in the truth of the next New City Catechism question. Here's the question. Is there any way to escape punishment and be brought back into God's favor? Is there any way? Yes. Yes. To satisfy His justice, God Himself, out of mere mercy, reconciles us to Himself, and He delivers us from sin and from punishment for sin by a Redeemer. Who is this Redeemer? He is Jesus the Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 2 said, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. And see, you are justified on the basis of what Jesus did for you on the cross. He paid for your sin and He paid for mine with His perfect life. What God asks of you and what He asks of me is repentance. That we would respond in faith. That we would surrender everything to Him. So will you lay down your pride and trust in Jesus? Amen.
Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.